Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 172, recorded on, what is it, March 17th now. The month is flying by. Uh, I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, to talk about all things photography, geekery stuff, uh, as we do every week, now that we are back weekly on this podcast. So thank you for listening. And uh, I would like to welcome my guest, who is one of my very good friends and the guy that helped me relaunch this podcast uh, Steve Brazel is back in the co-pilot seat. Steve, how are you today, man? I'm fantastic. Good morning to you, sir. How are you? I'm good. Uh, only half caffeinated so far. We started uh, uh, talking uh, officially at around 8 o'clock in the morning, my time, 11 o'clock at night, Steve's time. So if we have surly opinions, it's because we're tired uh, on either end of the day, which I think would make for a very interesting conversation. So we're about to see yeah, it's- what... <laughs> It's going to be a fun one. And by the way, I should warn everybody, if I lose my voice, my apologies. I came back from WPPI with the WPPI sickness of the year. And so I may cough or lose my voice. My apologies. Yeah. You know, when I came back from Canada in November, I was back for just a, a week and a bit. Uh, I, I don't know what I got. You know, COVID test was negative, but I was on the floor for three or four days afterwards. So I, I feel you, Steve. <laughs> I know what you're going through. Uh, but thank you for being a trooper and being on the show because we've got some really good stories to talk about. Uh, and I, I want to kind of dive right in because I'm not sure how much time uh, it's going to take to go through them, how far our opinions are going to go down the uh, relevant rabbit holes. But uh, from Petapixel, the first are, and I've seen this everywhere. It's on every single platform, and I've seen it discussed at length on social media. Um, Petapixel's title for it was one of the most salient, I think. Uh, and their title is, When is a Photo Not a Photo? And this is referring to the uh, the debacle, the scandal, the, I don't know what word you want to talk about, but um, Samsung has been caught, let's let's use that word, uh, replacing the moon in, uh, in photographs. So effectively, uh, to, to bring this back down to the basics, they've got a super zoom mode on their smartphones. And you could zoom in on a variety of objects. And one of those objects that a lot of people like to take pictures of is the moon. So as a software vendor, knowing that people are going to point your camera at the moon, and you could pretty easily detect that somebody's trying to take a picture of the moon. Super zooming in, mostly black background. You've got this bright object that's vastly overexposed compared to everything else. That's probably the moon. So you're going to do a couple of things that are going to get you a better moon picture. You're going to adjust the exposure, obviously, so that that white blob has detail in it. Perfect. You're going to focus to infinity. Uh, you, you know, obviously, the moon is very far away. So you're checking these boxes. And then you've got the moon. But, okay, this is uh, the era of computational photography. And with my, my iPhone, I mean, when I take a picture, I don't know how many, like a dozen layers of, uh, of processing are applied to the image using the, the LiDAR sensor and the cameras and all sorts of different uh, methodologies and processes to get the best image possible from that camera. So if it's the moon, and the moon is tidally locked to the earth, and the same face of the moon is always going to be present. Well, can't you just take some stock images 
of the moon, sample them together to create a version that looks acceptable to be possibly created from that camera, that device, and whatever the moon phase is, you paint that in, or maybe you've got the whole sample set of all the different days of the lunar cycle, uh, or nights of it rather, and substitute reality for this version that is as real as you should be able to take, but is not real. Steve, what do you think? Okay. How much time do you have? <laughs> so, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm joking and yet I'm not. First, let's say the Samsung Scene Optimizer feature, which is what this is called, can be turned off, but it is not off by default. And I would argue that is <clears throat> at best a mistake. Uh, at worst, it's worse than that. Computational photography is not the same as fake photography. Now, according to Samsung, they are not substituting, quote unquote, stock photography. They have trained an AI system. That AI system then uses what it has been trained on to effectively recreate the moon. It's been done in such a way where one guy on Reddit tested it. He, on his computer screen, far away, Gaussian blurred a moon, took a picture of it from the other side of the room with his Samsung, and ended up with a beautiful-looking moon that was not there. It was a Gaussian blurred moon. So we've got, in my opinion, this is why I said how much time you got. <laughs> in my opinion, there are four things that must be separated out here when talking about this. Number one, images created entirely by humans. That could be a raw shot. <clears throat> where all the decisions or most of them, except for things that do happen in camera, like long exposure, noise reduction might be on. Most of the decisions were made by the photographer. Then images created by humans where some of the decisions are being made by camera company engineers. For example, if you shoot a JPEG, that camera company engineer has designed on certain coloring, certain contrast, color grading, sharpening presets that will be applied to the point where a Nikon image will look slightly different from a Canon image is a good example. Well, and that, that's true of the raw files as well because of the sensor exactly. engineering. Exactly. Images created by humans with machine learning assistance like your phone, where it takes nine images, multiple exposures, and uh, looks for detail in different ones, and then it stacks those. And last but not least, what we have here, which is images that are created by swapping out what is actually there for something that is not actually there. And I'm going to give you the reason I wanted to list all of those. The first thought that hit me here was there are a lot of local newspapers where the reporters are also now the photographers. They yep. go out with an iPhone. <clears throat> they are taking journalistic images, which brings in journalistic integrity questions. So the photographer on the field, looking at the, the football field lights and the players, takes a picture of a sky with a moon. To him at that point, that actually is just a blown out white blob. But the Samsung might actually put a moon in there, which right. goes against all journalistic <laughs> integrity. Now this person is publishing a photo that has been doctored. Well, That's and so you said for me. you said you listed the four and you said last but not least, but I think you meant to say last but least, because in, in yes, this scenario, yes. 
this is the the least valuable version of an image because it's not real. And but but here here's where I draw the line because if I use my phone and you said you know nine or however many images are taken and layered and processed when I'm pointing my camera at I don't know my dinner plate it doesn't have to be an interesting subject but it just has to be unique and it's unique to me that that particular moment in time that is my moment to capture and whether it's you know uh, my kid running in the yard or a bird at a bird feeder or a beautiful sunset and I happen to pull over and I take that picture that is that is my unique moment and I don't really mind that the camera is processing it heavily uh, or maybe not at all or maybe I've got the portrait mode on and the background is being blurred uh, and I'm, I'm making that choice. Couldn't you argue what you just said? That's a preset that you've decided to accept. We use presets in Lightroom. We use presets in in processing software. It just so yep. happens that some people don't like the pre-processing. Forget the fake moon stuff, right? When you just take a landscape image with a Sam, Samsung Galaxy compared to an iPhone, they look different. People's skin looks different. You have accepted based on the phone you chose and are willing to use for your travel photos or whatever, your family photos, you've been willing to accept the Apple or Samsung or Google processing preset. Yep. That's not fake. This is fake. Yeah. And and so, and the thing about the moon is, the moon is a non-unique object. I mean, yes, we only have one moon, but every photo of the moon that I've seen is varying degrees of quality of the same thing. It is just the moon. And yes, you might have something that goes in front of it, uh, you know, something casting a silhouette or a, a shadow uh, so that you've got, you know, some variation in structure. Uh, I prefer to have a photo of the moon that is not full so that you've got some nice shadow play on the craters, but that's just a cycle. It's all still the same subject. And so for me, if I point my camera at the moon and I get a reconstruction from whatever AI technology that they are talking about, and again, this is just a machine learning algorithm that is taking pre-existing data photos of the moon and is combining them together to create the facsimile that appears in that resulting image. And I, I mean, I use software, uh, Topaz Gigapixel AI, I've been using quite a bit uh, as, a, as a way to increase the, uh, the resolution and detail that I'm getting in my snowflake images. So I want to make, make a, a parallel to that, because those algorithms, whether it's from Topaz or anybody else, they are, they've got a, a data set uh, of textures and, you know, whether it's hair or fur or leaves and, and what have you. And, and they can uh, substitute reality for this enhanced version of it in a way that is like a, a computer uh, brain painting on top of the existing data with what it knows should be there. And it's not always going to get it right. Um, but in that case, it is unique. It's not going to be doing the same thing. It's, and when I use it, uh, uh, by the way, like I, I'll run the algorithm and then I'll dial it back down to like 50 or 60%. And then I'll use uh, with a, uh, a layer mask on that layer uh, I'll have it all the way on. Then I take the the burn tool 
burn the highlights at 100%. And I'll, I'll just, with the, uh, the, the mouse, scrub over the areas that are egregious to me. That, that really don't work with the initial subject. And so when I'm burning the highlights, it's only going to take it down to about the midpoint at maximum uh, of the way that layer mask is. So it's never going to, like it, it's, a, it's a way to smoothly transition it away that doesn't uh, appear uh, noticeable to the, uh, to the end result. And, and I, I'm, again, I'm taking control of that process. I want that control. I don't want to leave it all up to a machine, even though machine learning is to some degree a part of the process. And we can embrace that. We can embrace the use of AI. But if you just let this take over, and it's giving you a fake result, I'm not okay with that. And I would turn that off. And as you said, Steve, uh, it's on by default. And there's a term called the the tyranny of the default, where right. basically, if something is on by default, 95% of people will never go in and toggle that. The, the, fa- the new app privacy issues on iOS that Facebook hates is because most people asked, do you want this app to track you will say no. So I've, I've got three things I need to bring up on this, though. So in the article up on Petapixel, they mention OM Digitals, which, you know, OM1 uh, used to be Olympus. Um, they have a live ND feature. That effectively is software. But to me, that's like long exposure no- noise reduction, right? However, yeah. there, are, there are really two things here. One If that is an image that you wanted to copyright protect, the argument then could be made that U.S. copyright law, for example, does not recognize copyright for AI-generated images. So now you get into that area of what if you do a landscape that has a prominent moon, and that prominent moon is done that way, does that affect you as an artist being able to do that? And secondly, what you just described with your snowflakes, what, what Olympus is doing, what you know, we do with with Photoshop and layers or Lightroom, those are all choices that we either accept somebody else doing for. I'm going to give you another example, actually. If I were to shoot a festival, a concert festival, I'm a live music photographer for those people that don't know me. I shoot concerts. Um, if I'm photographing a, a large festival, I don't edit my images. I give my images to an editor. Somebody else is still editing my images for me. But there are human controls involved in that. Whereas... In a case like this, that could that could be an issue in a number of ways, and it always comes back to me of, in so much of this, there is a delineation between representation to a public or art. And with art, fine art, photography, whatever you want to call it, I can composite, I can create a fake human if I want to, it's up to me, right? Yeah. But- if I am doing this for Rolling Stone, for Time, for Newsweek, for New, I don't shoot for them. Don't misunderstand me. But uh, you see my point. If I'm shooting for something journalistic, this is a huge loss of trust to the audience, and it is a now, huge this ethical of, problem. It is. Um, I'll give you a, an example where this could be very useful. However. Um, not in this same scenario, but for example, uh, I use my phone to take pictures of non-artistic and non, uh, I I don't know, non-photographic subjects. Like I'll I'll take a photo of a price tag at a supermarket, right? I'll, I'll take a photo of a piece of paper, um, that is some document that I just want to have a record of. 
And I would not mind a if, receipt. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. And I would not mind if in that photo, uh, and this, I don't know if anybody's doing this, but in the metadata, uh, they embed all the words that can be deciphered from the photograph. So you can Ooh. interpret it and you could modify the information. And then I could search for whatever that happens to be. And I could find it on my phone because the photo has been modified in a way where this information has been automatically generated and inserted into the, uh, the, the file itself. And, and as a searching tool, that could be really useful. And there's ways- In a sense, that that's been done because you can, in, in Mac OS or on your iPhone now, you can take a photo. I do this all the time. I don't want to type all of that, that it's on a printed page, but I need it in a word processor. I take a picture of it and I can highlight the text of the photo in Apple Photos app. It's and already I can, converting that. With uh, uh, Google Translate, which I have to use quite right, frequently right. because I'm in a country where I still don't speak fluently the native language. And uh, I, I can take a picture and it'll automatically translate all of the text within that, uh, identifying the words, translating them into English, uh, and, and it's fine. Modifying images based on the content within them is okay. I'm not against that at all, so long as it serves a purpose and it doesn't functional, uh, functionally change the reality of what it is that you are photographing. Once you change that reality without your say-so or control, then we cross the line. And I think we've crossed the line in this case. I don't disagree. I think we're on the same page. And again, I should probably say, because I'm, I'm, th this bothers me in many ways, but I should clearly say... I have no problem with, with this type of thing happening. I wish that it was off by default. <clears throat> I wish that creators or even a mom photographing their kid's soccer game had to enable this. Then again, I wish that night mode was off by default and I had to turn it on and it just didn't kick in when it wanted to. So I don't right. get everything that I want, but still. Well, and that kind of brings us into our second story here. And I tried to uh, kind of create a, a, a seamless conversation about editing and reality and, and how this all kind of comes together with us as photographers that are artists and we have to make creative choices. Um, so a story from F-Stoppers, avoid these five photo editing mistakes. And I hate when people sum things up so succinctly when it is very much a, a fluid conversation. And, and I'm not going to read the article verbatim, but I do want to touch on the five points that they uh, talk about here. Was it uh, Michael uh, Breitung wrote this article? Uh, and it's pretty well written. Um, so relying on just one exposure was the first one. Too much pre-sharpening, uh, followed by not removing chromatic aberration adding micro contrast too early and starting too dark. Those are the, the five points that uh, Michael was bringing to our attention. And if you check out the article, by the way, at, uh, you know, the links are at photogeekweekly.com. So uh, go and find it there. When he, <laughs> uh, th This bothered me in a way that it probably shouldn't, but when you notice it, you can't unsee it. And in the section of the article where he's saying adding micro contrast too early, he's showing a very uh, micro contrasty image of the Grand Canyon. And then he shows what he purports to be the original. 
And when you realize that the shadows and the light from one photo to the other are different, and yes, it's the same scene, and he probably just took a photo that was taken a half an hour before or after the first one, and I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, that's not the same image, and it's the, the fingerprint is wrong, it's not matching up. And as an editor, as a, as a photographer, somebody that wants edits to be as seamless and as invisible as possible, uh, at, that stood out to me as, as a mistake. And editing on, like, when I edit something, I want to make sure as best as I can that you can't tell what I've done. And uh, that, that's, that's number one. When I see an image and I say, oh, wow, you did a great editing job then you have failed on some level because I should not be able to see what you've done, right? Right, right. Now, okay, two things. Did you watch the video at the beginning? Because in the I video did, at yeah. the beginning, he shows those two pictures and I don't think he's purporting that they're the same. Um, I think he's purporting that they were edited at different times. Therefore, I took it as they could be different pictures. But beside the point, the article makes some great points. Like you say, the, the, I just... I read it and I thought to myself, you got an article, you have some footprint and F-stoppers of all places. Are those the five you would pick? And to I me, wouldn't. they are not the five that they would I would pick. First of all, even the one adding micro contrast too early does not reference or just too much, right? Yeah. Sometimes it isn't when you added it. It's just, it's the old, you know, don't take the car. Honey, stay away from the car. It's honey, stay away from the clarity slider. It, there, there are, there are just simple things. So Wednesday night, our mutual friend, you know, Troy and, and IEPPV and I judged their image. Troy Miller. Yeah. Troy Miller does a lot with Frederick Van Johnson on TWIP. He does their image critiques, in fact. Um, but anyway, I started thinking, what would my top five be? And I'm curious if you agree with these top five. All right. Because we, see. we tend to, we tend to think a lot alike here. And I saw... Every single one of these, the night before we are recording this, Wednesday night of this week, uh, during the image competition, <clears throat> and had to point them out. So number one, using a monitor that is either too bright or too dark or uncalibrated. Amen. Would be a, a, a big one to <laughs> me. And here's why. Let me explain for those of you that don't calibrate your laptop, which is usually what I see. It's people on MacBook Pros or something that don't calibrate. If your monitor is too bright, your shadows will look brighter and you will think that there is detail in those shadows that is not. And you will think your highlights are clipped and you'll pull them down when they were actually really nice specular highlights and now you've deadened them. If it's too dark, it's the opposite. You may actually think that you need to lift your shadows up and add shadow detail. But what you're really doing, like in my case, where I shoot at ISO 3200 or 6400, you start adding noise patterns in the back. Not just noise, but the, the real obvious problems of shooting at, at that high ISO. Or if your monitor's too dark, you might think your brights aren't bright enough. You'll brighten them, and now you're clipping your highlights. So that's number well, one. And, uh, but I, I want to touch on that, too, uh, uh, just to make one point. I used to work at a, uh, a photography store that specialized in printing, Black's Photography. This was over a decade ago, but 
Um, when there, they had a Fuji Frontier uh, printing system, which was really cool in that it used lasers to expose photographic paper and then chemicals to process it. So it was optical and chemical uh, in a fun sort of way. But that, that's neither here nor there. I just enjoy the tech. But when you're printing other people's work, we would so often get uh, improperly exposed images never overexposed, always underexposed. And the underexposed images were even from professionals or amateur photographers that took the time to edit their work, but their screen was too bright. And yep. their screen being too bright means that the resulting images are actually too dark. And we because would have you to think your image is bright and you pull it down. Yeah. But it wasn't bright. Yes, exactly. And we would have to autocorrect, and, and even uh, the, the cameras of that era uh, would not properly recognize a snow scene. And we lived in an area that had a number of ski resorts nearby uh, in the Blue Mountains. And if somebody came and wanted to print out their skiing photos, unless we took the, the initiative to correct them, they would always come through underexposed. The snow would be gray and everything would be yep. dark. And people would just complain about it. And I remember this one customer she uh, she would always insist adamantly that we never autocorrect her images. And uh, we would always autocorrect the images and she'd always be happy with them. I didn't know that at the time. So uh, she came in very uh, precisely stating, don't autocorrect my images, not knowing that she had said that exact same thing for years and everybody behind the scenes always autocorrected the images because the exposure was not right. And I diligently followed her command. And she was so pissed with the images that resulted that were just way too dark. She came back and complained right away. And then the other uh, staff member that knew her didn't properly train me on this exact scenario, uh, reprinted her work, and she was happy with the reprint. And the, the customer scolded me. And then my uh, my colleague brought me behind the scenes and said, yeah, you know, when, when this lady says that she doesn't want her work corrected, don't listen to her. She thinks she's right and she's wrong. And uh, there, there's my analogy about stuff being well, wrong brightness. And and exactly. This, this is a critical one to be in five editing mistakes. Number two, doing global adjustments when you should be doing local adjustments. Yes. For example, oh, don't add clarity. Preaching. I love Don't it. Don't add texture. Don't add, oh my God, noise reduction to the point where people have plastic skin. Grab an adjustment brush, or if you're doing it in Photoshop, use masking to only apply the effect that you need where you need it. That should be in there to me. Do you agree? Uh, 100%. And so, uh, so many times I've seen people just crank up the texture on an image. And you know what? That, that works great for the sky, but it makes other parts of the image too attention grabbing and it doesn't direct the eye around the frame properly. So yes, works great for tattoos, but not pores. Well, yeah, there you go. Uh, it, it's great for skies, but not grass, right? You know, you, you want to make sure, depending on your, your subject, what is being applied where it needs to be. And I might argue that aside from uh, some slight adjustments in the uh, in the basic panel and Lightroom, and never move those sliders to the extreme. But aside from just some basic adjustments there, don't do any global adjustments to an image. Just stop doing it. Because as soon as you start to do local <laughs> adjustments, it becomes better. The, the process will take longer 
Absolutely. But it should take longer because you are owning your art at that point. That's one of, that's one of, you know what? That's the best way to word that is that as soon as you stop doing as, I'm not going to say any, as soon as you stop doing as many global adjustments as you do, you're going to be shocked at how much better your photos look. And it's, yep. it is palpable. So number three, over sharpening or over contrast. And the problem here is most people do not understand in a digital image, what sharpening and contrast do and how they relate to each other. So you have sharpening. What, what are they, Steve? School well, us on you this. Have, you, you have normal sharpening, which is an edge sharpening. The way that we perceive sharpness in an image is how defined lines and edges of things are. But what people don't realize, clarity, texture, and dehaze are contrast tools. What is contrast? It is a kind of sharpening in a way it's an it's an enhancement of edges at different parts or frequencies of an image like if you do frequency separation you have high frequency low frequency um those all will affect your contrast and your sharpening if you overdo it for example dehaze is a great example in live music when i have a somebody fell asleep on the hazer or smoke machine right and there's just so much you can't see it i can recover a lot with a dehaze but because it's a contrast tool, it will also muddy up and darken up my blacks. So I have to understand how to counterbalance that. So stop yeah. over sharpening and over contrasting an image. Well, and he here's a test that uh, anybody can do to see how these different uh, adjustments affect an image. Uh, don't take an image. Just open up a, a blank canvas in Photoshop, have something that is slightly light gray and have something that is a slightly darker gray with a very solid line between them and crank the sharpening and then zoom in on the pixels that border those two shades of gray and see what happens. One side will get slightly brighter and one side will get slightly darker. And it will only be a pixel or two difference on that edge, but it is sharpening that edge by making one brighter and one darker, which is increasing the contrast on that connecting point. And when you uh, make adjustments like uh, clarity or texture, see what happens there too. It will affect that edge differently, usually by spilling it more than a few pixels off so yep. that you can see that effect over a larger area. And and that's, it's, I mean, it, it's useful to know what's happening on, on a pixel level. Uh, and from that perspective, um, it's, uh, it, it, it works, you know. The best example, the best, the best reading I've had on texture versus clarity versus dehaze in Lightroom is from Julianne Koss, the, the evangelist from, from Adobe. And it's on her jkoss.com blog. It's from March of 2022, actually. And it's a fantastic one. Number four is what you said earlier, which is a pet peeve of mine. There was an image in this image competition I would have given an extremely high score to, except I could see visibly, obviously leaped off the screen that was two feet away from me that you had cloned stuff out. Uh, Steve, there you're stealing is no, all of my picks. I, we're, there's we're no substitute for, for zooming the hell in at 800% and fixing your chromatic aberration fringing, your halos, fixing those issues, and you've got to clone properly. 
Well, and so learn those clone tools. Don't depend on some level of automation here. The healing tool is very useful in some cases. The clone tool is useful in others. The auto, uh, you know, spot cloning and healing tools, they can work too, but you got to know which one is, uh, is proper for what scenario. And if it makes something that even just a couple of pixels is off, go and massage that to be normal again. Uh, I can't stress that enough. And I see, you know, I, I do a lot of macro photography, obviously, and I, I, I teach, uh, you know, students and they present their images to me. And uh, very often, in almost every class I get, I have some noticeable cloning artifacts in an image. And maybe it's the, the edges of a frame that haven't been cropped in because something was focus stacked and you have to do frame alignment and the edges have some, uh, you know, strange lines. And Or maybe it's something that's cloned out of an image where you've got a soft background, but then you've got this weird hard edge that shouldn't be there where something was cloned and you know, obviously, that manipulation has happened. That can't be allowed in the final image. You got to make sure you uh, you properly push those pixels. And I'm not saying don't clone stuff out. By all means, if that's what you want to do, do it. But make sure that I can't see that you've done it. Yeah, exactly. And um, they, they call it cloning tracks for a reason. If you clone improperly, you get a repeating pattern that looks almost like railroad tracks. So you got to be careful of that. Now, my fifth and final one, I don't think you'll guess... But you have some as well. What, it, what Before I say my last one, what do you got? So uh, I put together a list of maybe about a dozen. Some are more important than others. Uh, but if I were to if I were to pick one, uh, it's that it, it's not the editing that's the mistake. It's the shooting that's the mistake. And it's that you stopped shooting before you actually got the image. Or in camera, you didn't hedge your bets and shoot multiple versions of the same exposure. Uh, you know, where you're, you're changing ever so slightly, maybe the wind is blowing and you're just going to give yourself a bigger sample size of information that you can then take into editing. Because if you have to fake it in editing when you could have gotten it in camera properly, then you don't have the necessary materials that you need in the editing room uh, to do the best job that you can. So it really goes back to the in-camera uh, side of things. It's That's interesting because what you just described, I did not see that one coming. What you just described was almost exactly what I'm about to say, except mine... I'm wording it from the post point of view, from the editing point of view. You're doing it in camera, but it's not using light and composition. Pro I, I hate the word properly. I don't want to use the word properly, but not using light and composition in a strong enough way to direct the viewer through the story. In other words, you're, you're looking at your image and you're processing to what you think might look good with absolutely oh, wow, I really like this gritty look, or I, I love this high contrast look, without ever thinking, what is a viewer that wasn't in the scene, didn't hear the music, didn't hear the birds chirping, what are they seeing? You need to, for lack of a better phrase, although there's a million ways to get here, you need to dodge and burn. Now, that could be, in the modern world, putting a radial filter on that vignettes the outside with nothing but dehaze. But you need to, in some way, massage and manipulate the light and shadow to take the viewer's eye through the story you want to tell. And that's the well, same and, thing and in that, a way you said. 
if, if you look at an image in terms of lines and shapes and colors, right? I, I learned this uh, from a book from Freeman Patterson, Photography and the Art of Seeing. Uh, to really abstract the image, not looking at the subject, you know, you can you can tell yourself what the subject is and you can see what, what you, know, you know, that's a tree, that's a dog, whatever. But if you look at it, not in terms of the subject, but in terms of the lines and the shapes, you're going to see the image a lot differently. And you're going to see uh, your eyes will dart around the frame. And it's important to visually identify what you're looking at. It's like, why did I look there? Oh, well, that, that part of the image is bright. Or that part of the image has a lot of contrast. Or this uh, diagonal line hits the edge of the frame, and so my eyes went to that. But are those important? They might be, but they might not be. And so to visually deconstruct the image into the lines and shapes and colors in complete abstraction of what the subject is, is part of the editing process that would be another one if I could say as, as my, my bonus pick um, as editing mistakes that you were touching on, Steve. You were, you were right on the edge of, of saying that. Um, but I think it needs to, to be said that you just tear the image apart by lines and shapes and colors and put it back together with the story that you want them to say. And and since you got a bonus tip, I got to throw kind of one in there, and that is one or two. What Don just said about understanding how the eye is going to dart through a picture, understanding where your eye will go to the brightest spot or and or the most saturated spot generally in an image. Or if there is a super bright image and one really dark black box for some reason, your eye will actually go to the black box. You need to know how the human eye reacts to things. And there's two things that I would give you to help you with that. Number one, turn your image upside down. So it is command right bracket on a Mac in Lightroom to rotate your image, turn it upside down. It's amazing how fast you will see what really is the brightest spot. And you shot a portrait and you're suddenly going to find out that the brightest spot in the image is the person's knee. (laughs) <laughs> so, and it should be the face, right? Yep. And the other thing is, is when you are in that crop tool and rotating an image or whatever, don't just go with a rule of thirds crop. Bring up the golden triangles. Bring up the golden ratio. Whether you understand it or not doesn't matter. Pull it up and start to understand the relationships of your foreground, midground, background subject, people. When you start to do that, your imagery, your editing will get better. And, and yeah. Well, and when you apply those tools, Steve, uh, to any image taken with any camera, uh, you're going to make better images. And and the camera then isn't as integral to the process. Uh, You're defining it based on the way that you are seeing things. And yes, it all starts in camera and framing and composition all start there, but it doesn't stop there. Uh, And that kind of brings me into the third story here, which is somewhat... uh, you know, philosophical, I guess, uh, when you uh, boil it down. From Petapixel again here, the gorgeous winners of the 12th Annual Mobile Photography Awards. And I encourage everybody to take a look at these images, but to look at them not as if they are mobile photography images by whatever that means in today's day, but just look at them as photographs. And I, I got to thinking when I was reading through the story and looking at these images, it it doesn't it i can't tell that they're mobile images nor nor should i 12 years ago when this contest assuming it's been uh annual uh ever since then 
I haven't uh, gone back to see what the first ones were, but 12 years ago, there was probably a significant quality difference between what came out of a phone and what came out of a properly designed purpose-built camera. And one might have wanted to celebrate mobile photography at that time because you were pushing against limitations of technology in a particular form factor. Uh, and and that's fine. But today, <clears throat> I, I think that smartphones, and, and dare I say this, uh, uh, this comment, it's uh, heresy to some, but mobile phones take better pictures than regular cameras. And I, I say that based on the knowledge that it's not the camera that takes the picture that makes it good, it's the photographer. But the majority of people that are using image capturing devices today are not trained photographers and thereby the smartphone or whatever, uh, you know, Samsung, uh, you know, Google Pixel, uh, iPhone, whatever, uh, is going to, by default, without any input from a, a trained photographer, is going to generate better images than that same person with a purpose-built camera. And send me all the hate mail you want about that. But then you've got this co collection of images that whether or not they've been edited, they've been framed nicely. Uh, the compositions, they all work in various different degrees. There's <clears throat> there's stories in some of them. Um, there is just a, a sense of, uh, I, I don't know, in, intelligently composed and created work that I love. But it shouldn't be considered as just mobile photography. Any of these could be made with any camera. The value that we're creating here in this set of images is from the creative input of the person wielding the device and not the device itself. That's a long ramble, Steve. What do you got? I love it. And the funny thing was, you said something I, I made a note on. Most smartphones today take better pictures than most photographers today. And you could argue that that's most phone engineers take better pictures. But I think you see my point because it's basically what you said. And it's it's interesting to me because I'll be honest, when I saw this, this article and I browsed through, and most of the stuff was from uh, the grand prize winner in here, which is, is Glenn Homan. His shots in any context are awesome. I don't care if they're a smartphone. For some reason, people think when you say smartphone photography, iPhone photography, whatever you want to call it, that that means you take a picture with the phone, it does its little processing, and you're done. You can shoot raw on an iPhone. You can download Halide and get a beautiful raw image. It's a camera, okay? And yep. you emailed me something. I've got some things on this one that when, when, I, read <laughs> the, when I read the rundown of stories <clears throat> that you sent me in the email, uh, I kind of glanced over this one. Oh, that'll be fun. And then I started reading the article and thinking about it and all kinds of feelings came out. It was weird. You, you wrote in your email to me, quote, should the gear you use qualify or disqualify you from such things as competitions? And the answer to that question, hundred percent is no. Eddie Van Halen could walk into a pawn shop and buy a $35 cheap guitar with a hole in it. And it doesn't change that he is going to melt your mind with that $35 guitar. Think what Ansel Adams, think what Cartier uh, Bresson could do with a freaking phone today because they're photographers. 
They understand what, in my opinion, the the grand prize winner of this competition, and in fact, their photographer of the year too, Glenn knew how to under, he understood light and shadow and composition and storytelling. And by the way, there is, I don't know if you looked at all the images, but Zheng Ji Wu has a phenomenal landscape image in here in like a cavern with, with beams of light coming through. And I do a podcast called Behind the Shot. <clears throat> I just did an episode with Jefferson Graham. Jefferson Graham does Photo Walks TV where he mostly uses his phone. So I did an episode with Jefferson called Using an iPhone as Your Vacation Camera. It was the entire premise. And the reason I wanted to do it was back in the days of the iPhone 6, we're on 14 now. iPhone right. 6, my family went to Italy and I didn't want to be that dad with a DSLR. I took nothing but an iPhone 6. And were there moments I wished I had my DSLR? Yes. But I got some pretty damn good shots with that. And I got comments on this show with Jefferson. Again, the title, using an iPhone as your vacation camera. One yeah. guy complained and said that we <clears throat> well, were acting like the only options available were full frame and iPhone to which I responded to him, the title of the damn show is using an iPhone as your vacation camera. He deleted it. But yeah, but well, you I, won't believe I, I, I want to jump in uh, I, 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 because the, there is the category for visual effects and digital art in, in this competition. And the entry from um, Heather McAllister, which I'm assuming won, looks very much like a black and white film double exposure. Uh, it's it's near near the bottom of, of the article. And, and again, yep, I encourage I everybody to check out the images. That is a really cool composition. It has a it basically you're using photography as as an art form as you should, creating something that is um it, it, there's a woman and there's birds flying across uh the, the frame, and you can see through the uh, the tail feathers of one of these birds, a pigeon, I guess that one of her eyes is visible, one of them is not. It's integrating the bird sort of into her face, sort of like a mask. Uh, and the birds may or may not be a part of a landscape that is put underneath. Uh, and there's editing that makes it look like film. It, there's a lot of artistic choices that were deliberately chosen to create the final output of that. And whether or not that was done with a phone or a traditional editing suite or in a dark room, I don't think any of those things should really constrain you uh, when, when it comes down to whether or not your art is appreciated or qualifying. But, but here's the thing. I totally agree. Here's what most people miss, though. And that is, along with the fact that you can do a lot of it with your phone. No, you can't do everything. But you can do a lot of it with your phone now. It also brings in advantages that you don't get from other gear. I had a guy comment on that show. And this this comment cracked me up. When dealing anywhere in the electromagnetic spectrum, radio, TV, light, x-rays, there's no substitute for real estate. The little pinhole cell phone lens just cannot gather the light, no matter how much it's supported <laughs> by high-tech electronic foo-foo. And here's what he finished with. It is fun, convenient, and inexpensive, but data is data, and the cute little phone just can't gather much, to which my response is this. No one says a phone can replace a mirrorless or a DSLR. I shoot concerts. I would never do it on a phone. But the comment he said, quote, fun, convenient, 
and inexpensive. Not every shot, not every shoot is a commercial or portfolio shoot. Fun, convenient, inexpensive, and powerful enough to create these images is something to be reckoned with. Absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't uh, take an iPhone image today and, uh, and, and, and pass that off as, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've done artistic iPhone images, don't get me wrong, but I wouldn't, I, if I'm going to pick up a camera for professional work, it is probably not going to be the iPhone. But if I'm going on vacation and I'm leaving the professional work behind, I, the iPhone is going to be a fantastic tool. But if I were to take a look at uh, point-and-shoot cameras, like the best point-and-shoot cameras from 10 years ago, my iPhone is probably better than them uh, today. And I, I think that it's always a rolling target. And we can talk about the gear, and we can talk about our expectations of the gear, but at the end of the day, the resulting images speak for themselves. And we have to make sure that uh, we keep that in check, because as photographers, we obsess about equipment. We should obsess more about the art. And uh, it, it's a battle in my head all the time. I see great images, and part of me is thinking, oh, what lens did they use? When I should just be appreciating the execution of the final uh, product and not what went into it. But that, that's the battle that we have. Being a purist for good, logical, Vulcan-like reasons is wonderful. <laughs> Being a purist at the point of being snobbish, disclusionary, exclusionary is useless. Let yeah. people shoot what they want. And if they create art that moves you in some way, I think the world is a better place. Uh, yeah, um, that, that's the, the uh, Will Wheaton rule right there, I suppose. Yes. All right. I'm not going to say it. No, no. We're going we're gonna to move on to our final story. Uh, also from Petapixel, they've been hitting some, some good stories out here, although I did see this one from a number of venues, including F-Stoppers. Um, photographers are buying cameras on Amazon, but getting cat food instead. And so this, I suppose, is just a public service announcement that if you're buying something from not a an authorized reseller like B&H or Adorama or directly from the manufacturer or what have you, there are risks involved uh, in you getting scammed. Scammers going to scam. They're going to find whatever platform allows them to, uh, to, to make money where they have no legitimate right to make money. And whether that's through some sort of NFT scam uh, or in this case, Amazon has really strange rules in terms of refunds, because basically, once you've signed for a package that says it's in your possession, it's very difficult for you to get a refund if what they sent you was not what you ordered. And I, I've I've seen this happen. This is not new. This has been happening with video game systems where people order like a new PS5 or something, and they they get a PS5 box that is just filled with bricks inside, just to give it the weight and heft as if there was something actually in there. Uh, so it's not exclusive to just the the camera industry. Uh, what do you think about this, Steve? And what can you do to protect yourself from this? So. It's real easy when you hear stuff like this to 
almost try and figure out, look, it's never happened to me. What are these people doing that they're subjecting themselves to this type of abuse? Almost every case cited in this article was Amazon. There is a link in the article to another story also on Petapixel um, from a different time said devastated photographer sent bags of white powder instead of a $3,000 camera. Yeah, that Sony one was Alpha not 7 Amazon. If, if, you, if you were expecting a Sony a7 IV and you get bags yeah. of white powder, I mean, that's- It's a bad uh, day. It's a bad day. <laughs> yeah. And, but that one wasn't Amazon. That was a company called Jessup's, which is a UK camera store, apparently, I'm not familiar with. But here's the thing. I have a rule of thumb when I buy on Amazon. Now, the reason I bring up the Jessup's one is because that says you could buy from insert brand name camera store here, and in theory, it could still happen. Somebody could open it up at the shipper or whatever, but 90% of what we're reading about is Amazon. So I have a rule, standard rule on Amazon with anything I buy. When you look on Amazon, it will tell you who the the seller is and who the shipper is. And a lot of times they're both Amazon. A lot of times the seller is third party, but the shipper is Amazon. And I'm usually okay with that because my attitude is if Amazon shipped it, they're going to at least have to listen to what I say because it could have happened in their warehouse. Right. If something is listed as seller, Don Komarechka, shipper, Don Komarechka, at that point, if they're both third party, a red flag goes up to me because there's no reason somebody selling on Amazon shouldn't be able to get in their warehouse. And I'm a little more hesitant and I read return policies and I read reviews and I'm a little more careful. And usually I actually won't buy. But here's my question to you. We live in a world now where people are raising absolute hell about app store policies. Like literally, yeah. I bought an app and the company went out a bit or, or they upgraded to version three from version two and they're making me buy the app all over again for $3 and people's hair are lighting on fire from this. It, it is beyond my imagination that this doesn't get as much attention and people are not demanding that Amazon and retailers like Amazon have some quality controls for anybody that they represent in their store. Yeah. I mean, what, what are you supposed to do uh, whenever you get an expensive Amazon package? You film the delivery person handing it to you and opening it as proof that what is inside is or isn't what you ordered. I mean, that, that's a way Not to letting it. them drive but, away until you do. Yeah, exactly. But but if even if you were to do that, uh, and you complain, you're going to be talking to some sort of AI chatbot on Amazon uh, in order to voice your complaints. And there's no way for you to even provide the necessary evidence unless it escalates and escalates again, and probably a third level where you actually get somebody that is capable of issuing a refund for a multi-thousand dollar item that you never received. And we only hear about this because, and, and I'm going to make an assumption here, that people don't get this fixed right away and they have to make a public stink about it and take it to the court of public opinion before they can get it fixed. And then we all hear about this where it, if it is happening and it should be solved very easily, but then at the same time, uh, from Amazon's perspective or from any retailer's perspective, if I were to claim that I ordered a camera and I got a cinder block instead, well, I could be lying. I could very easily be trying to scam the retailer as well. And I'm sure that happens a lot. So, you know, it, it's a problem on both sides and there's a lack of, of trust 
that I, I don't know how we address unless we go back to the original model. Like if I go, if I go into a, uh, an electronic store here and I find it somewhat comical, but, uh, uh, Technopolis is, is a big retailer here that we've bought some of our household appliances and gadgets and what have you from. Every time we buy something, they take it out of the box, they plug it in, and they show us that it works. Like when we bought a microwave, they have a little cup of water that is sitting next to the where they have the microwaves. And they'll take your microwave out of the box. They'll put in the cup of water. They'll make you put your finger in the water first to see that it's cold. Then they'll put it in the microwave, heat it up, and you put your finger in it, and you know that that water is now hot, that the microwave wait a minute, wait a minute, works. Wait a Are you saying they're not using a demo microwave to say, look, your model works? They pull your actual one? Yes. Your actual microwave, wow. they take it out of the box. They play, They did this with our iron. You know, when we were buying like a, a steam iron thing to mm-hmm. you know, flatten out the wrinkles and clothes, um, they would plug it in. Same thing for a hair straightener. We plug it and make sure that it works. Blow dryer, same idea. Uh, all of the household appliances that we purchased, um, aside from something that was delivered deliberately like a, like a fridge, right? They're not going to drag out the fridge when it's going to go in a truck, but they'll plug it in when they deliver it and they'll make sure that it works before they leave. That I think stems from an inherent lack of trust and scamming on both sides of the equation so that this removes any shadow of a doubt that what you're buying is functional. It's exactly what you expect and that it's not an establishment of trust per se. Um, it's that there is a lack of trust and thereby proof is required uh, at the end to make everybody happy. That's the way the retail system works here. And I'm not saying that we have to go to that extreme, but there has to be checks and balances on both sides of the, the, this um, interaction, this uh, you know exchange of, of money for goods that, um, well, it's hard to do when everybody is an anonymous party. I hear people in my head saying, oh, this is, you know, this is a big deal because there is an article about three people that it happened to, and this is such a small bit of the population. But here's the thing. Like anything else at scale, it's a small percentage of the people that have the issue until it happens to you, at which point it's 100% of the issue. What I'm hoping for is, like I'm browsing Amazon as we speak, I'm going to order two bags of white powder, and I'm hoping... (laughs) that somebody will take those two bags of white powder out of the box and drop an EOS R3 in there. It could happen. <laughs> it would be horrible for me, but if somebody wants to do it. And well, speaking of bags of white powder, I have once purchased bags of white powder off of Amazon. Um, specifically- Why did I know that was going to be the case? It was specifically pigment, fluorescent pigment that's used to like mix into novelty makeups and what have you. And to my surprise, a bag of uh, inconspicuous, like white label, white powder came through the postal system, no problem whatsoever. So um, that that's my anecdote on uh, uh, shipping white powder through the mail. But <laughs> That's hilarious. But, But I digress. Uh, Steve, we've gone through the stories, and thank you so much for your very valuable opinions on all of them. Before we get to the picks of the week, where can people find you online? You're still doing your podcast, right? Still doing my podcast, Behind the Shot. It's at behindtheshot.tv, wherever you get your podcast. There's two feeds. If 
For example, if you use Apple Podcasts or you know some other podcast uh, catcher app, if you search for Behind the Shot, it will come up twice. There is an audio-only feed, if that's what you prefer. There is a video feed if you want to watch the video of myself and my guest. We are discussing a single image generally on the show, not always, but 99% of the time. Myself and my guest take one of their shots and we dissect it. It's not an interview of the guest. In fact, we're both talking just as much probably. It's the two of us interviewing their photograph to better understand how their mind works and why they made the choices that they did. It's at BehindTheShot.tv or on YouTube. It's Behind the Shot there. Social media, the podcast is Behind the Shot TV anywhere. And I am at Steve Brazel, Twitter. Instagram. I'm on Mastodon. Give me a follow there. Uh, and it's like the country Brazil, but two L's and still doing it. And uh, I, you know, I look forward to, and I don't, um, I, I don't watch every episode of behind the shot. Uh, but what I, what I do, and I think this might be true of others as well, is I'll find an image that I find interesting. Not, not that I really like, but something that is curious about it. Maybe it's something that I don't have any experience with, that I just want to get inside the mind of somebody that created that image. And it consistently delivers. So BehindTheShot.tv. Uh, it's a great, I will uh, say, a great program. I will say last month, February, when I, when I started Behind the Shot, I started on our mutual friend, Frederick Van Johnson's network this week in, in photo. And at one point I was going to stop podcasting and some friends of mine talked me into continuing and I went out on my own and when I started this podcast, there were a handful of people, and I said this during the show, there were a handful of people that I knew, oh, someday I want to get them, right? And one of them was a bucket list item that I had on my show last month, which if you don't know who he is, his name is Pete Souza. He was the White House photographer uh, for um, Reagan. And then he was the White House photographer for all eight years of Obama, legendary photographer, brilliant photographer. And we talked about one of his iconic pictures of President Obama in the White House. It's called Hair Like Me. And if you've never watched my show, that would be a good one to start with. But yeah, thank you for your compliments. That's very nice of you. Oh, well, my, my pleasure. And uh, for anybody that is uh, uh, listening to this, you probably know where you can find me, uh, doncom.ca or .bg, actually. Uh, I've got the Bulgarian TLD as well. It just directs to the same website. Nothing different there, but uh, always feel free to check out what I'm up to. And uh, Twitter. And you're on Instagram. You're on Instagram, Twitter. Facebook, Flickr. I still love Flickr. It's the best way to, to see images. And there's no limitation on the number of words you can apply uh, to the description of an image. And I tend to be rather verbose. Instagram has a text limit, as does Twitter. So, you know, you can't write, uh, you know, a full page of text and post it on Instagram. They'll cut you off after 220, uh, no, uh, 2200 characters, um, which seems like Are a lot. Are you Mastodon yet? You know, I, I was just talking to Chris Marquardt about that because I'm going to be on on his uh, latest episode of his show, and he's twisted my arm sufficiently that during the next week I am going to be on Mastodon. I'm not there yet. Don't I, look. I'm so loving well. it. Uh, I I don't know if I will love it, but I've got a feeling that the uh, the quality of the discourse on that platform will be far higher than what I'm used to on Twitter. Very definitely. Very definitely. And it's different. 
Um, I follow Chris. Chris doesn't know me. I don't know that he follows me back, but I follow Chris. Uh, I follow a couple of great people on there. A lot of tech people on there. It, it is different than Twitter. I'm still on both, but one doesn't make me angry. <laughs> that That's an important statement because most yes. of social media these days is all about sensationalism and usually in a negative context. Yeah, very <sighs> true. All right. Well, I'm going to uh, gonna jump on to the picks of the week here. And uh, I'm going to start and talking about, uh, you know, colleagues and friends. I, I had to put a shout out to my friend, Stuart Wood, uh, who has been making a name for himself in a number of ways, particularly on YouTube. And so uh, youtube.com uh, slash Stuart Wood Art. He does a lot of macro photography, which is right in my wheelhouse. And he's not afraid to show his mistakes and to talk negatively about stuff, but in in a way that is 100% justified and intellectual. He shows you the entire behind the scenes as to how things come together. Uh, you know, th this is a guy that is very genuine, and his material is lengthy enough without filler, but not boring to the point where you just want to skip through it. And so he's been doing this for quite some time. Uh, I, I don't know how many videos he necessarily has, but he spends a significant amount of time editing and putting them together. And the end results are really fun on so many different topics. Yes, he tends to, uh, you know, focus jumping spiders more than other particular things because he keeps them as pets uh, and what have you. But it's just, it's really good content. Check out Stuart Wood on YouTube. Give him a follow. Please tell him that I sent you. Uh, he's a great guy and the content is worth your attention. And I will tell you, he's got 304 videos right now. Might as well document this to see if there's any change. He's got 37,900 subscribers. He's doing really good. I love, by the way, Stuart, if you hear this, I love your poster designs. Like you're, you're uh, photographing smoke, photographing matches. Love your poster design. Yeah, uh, and it, it really just brings it home. Uh, it tells you exactly what the video is going to be about, uh, the content that you can expect uh, at the end of that particular video, and uh, and how you can recreate it yourself. So, uh, Stuart, there you have it. Let's send people your way. Let's maybe let's see if we could at least uh, at least push that to thirty eight thousand subscribers. Maybe maybe thirty nine. Everybody, go there. Uh, follow, uh, subscribe to to Stuart Wood. Hit the, the bell saying that you're uh, properly subscribed and make sure that you don't miss the stuff that he's putting out next. All right, yep. Steve, what do you got for me? So I have a pair of things that work together. I don't need one of them, so I don't use one of them, but it's video pencil and video pencil camera. And you can find these at a website called Squares, plural, squares.tv. It's squares.tv slash video pencil or squares.tv slash video pen, video dash pencil dash camera. And here's what these are. So in my show and in the critique shows that you and I used to do, <clears throat> I liked the ability to have a telestrator, which is where you can draw on the screen. I like the ability when we dissected an image on the critique shows to be able to say, here's the rule of thirds, or here's these clone tracks and circle it, Right. And the way that I used to do that was I'd use a normal drawing app on my iPad with a green screen, <clears throat> run that over HDMI into my ATEM Mini, and I would do an overlay in the ATEM Mini that would then pull out the green screen and anything I drew, you'd see on the screen. But I'm drawing on a green screen. <clears throat> so half the time, if I was trying to circle a bird in the sky, 
you'd miss. I'd miss, have to erase it and and do it again because I'm guessing, right? I used to take post-it notes and put them on my iPad to try and give myself an idea where the image would be. What Video Pencil does is Video Pencil round trips your camera. So the Video Pencil camera app, which I believe is completely free, is a camera NDI. So it takes whatever webcam you do, you choose your built-in webcam, you choose your Logitech webcam, it sends it over NDI, and the Video Pencil app on your iPad or whatever grabs that NDI signal and displays a live feed of your camera, which then round trips it back to the Video Pencil camera app, and that's a virtual camera you can choose in Zoom. So... In your Zoom, you can draw on yourself. You can draw notes on the screen while you're talking. You can load movies and pictures into the Video Pencil app. But here's the thing. I don't use the Video Pencil camera because if you use something like OBS, or in my case, I use Ecamm Live. Ecamm Live has an NDI out. So anything I put on screen, Don, me, a photo, all three of us at one time, that feed That mixed together feed, that scene of multiple sources, gets fed out over over NDI to this app. I can see it on my iPad. I can draw on it. And then it sends it back as an overlay. And it automatically knows. It doesn't need a green screen. It knows what video feed's coming in. It only sends back my pencil markings. And I use an Apple Pencil for this. And so I can see the live feed and draw anywhere on the screen that I want. And if you're doing presentations, it has another really kind of cool feature. If you draw a line across the screen and don't lift your finger or your pencil up and say a word, it puts the word on the line. So if you draw a three-inch line and say hello, the word hello appears. If you draw, so if I'm doing a presentation and say, Don, here's what I want to talk about. And I drag a line and I say, macro photography in 2023. It'll type that on the screen. It's a wonderful app. It is free to download and try, but is watermarked. If you want to remove the watermark from Video Pencil, I think it's $39. So call it $40 US. The If you don't use OBS or Ecamm, the Camera Loop app that takes your webcam and does it, so you can just use it in Zoom or whatever, that's a free addition. And yeah, $40 is expensive, but you have no idea how hard this was to implement until this app. And it works really well. Money well spent. Because the way that you described how to do it before this and how it didn't even work that well... Uh, $40 is, um, is a a drop in the bucket compared to all of the frustration and expense that you would have had to go through, uh, without this particular tool. So that, that's pretty, I I don't have television. I don't have an iPad. I'm drawing on a video screen in real time on an iPad. It's pretty amazing. I do know if it's available on Android for, for those tablets as well. It's it's app store only Apple app store only. Okay. So iPad users, oh, but, but rejoice. I should say, if you all you need is an iPad, right? So if you had an iPad, you, a cheap iPad would work. So yeah, yeah. I I have a, an Android tablet, and I don't have a a need for an iPad yet. But this, I mean, if I had a a production use for this, like you do, 
um, it would almost be a reason to buy an iPad uh, just to simplify the entire process of just, and I, I teach. And, and so having this as a tool could be very useful. Uh, so I'm going to give you one. I'm going to give you one. So you do like I do. Give them a, a quick plug here. We do workshops for our, our, the wonderful people over at Princeton Photo Workshop, princetonphotoworkshop.com. Um, and imagine you are doing a class and you pull up a student's image that they did for homework in between multi-session classes, and you want to be able to draw on the image to tell them, you see this spot here? If you did this, it's a wonderful tool not just in my podcasting sense, but like you say, educational. You could work in an accountant's office, but if you're in a Zoom meeting, being able to pull up screen share, I screen share a spreadsheet. I can circle numbers on the spreadsheet. I can do math on the spreadsheet. Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful tool I think would benefit you actually in your classes. All right. Well, I'm going to have to keep this on my radar. I'm going to look for a, a decent deal on a, on a used iPad, a couple of generations old, and see how I can make that work. Thank you for the Costing pick, Steve. money All, one show at a time. Always happy to, to spend my money. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to Photo Geek Weekly. Again, you can get the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. Uh, and give me the feedback. Uh, you know, write a comment. Just send me an email note. Uh, give me a call uh, if you can track down my Bulgarian phone number. But uh, whichever way you want to get in touch and keep this conversation going, I'm more than happy to have it. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. I'm looking forward to doing more of these. Looking forward to having Steve back on the show on a regular basis. It's always great to have you here, Steve. And to all those listening, thanks for that. Now it's time to get out and shoot. <laughs>